So as you're grabbing your seat, get your Bibles and open them to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel will be in Daniel chapter 2 today. And let me just, uh, as you guys are turning there, let me set up uh, this new series. So as you guys know, uh, we are making preparations for a study in the book of Revelation and uh, it's hard to get into Revelation without first looking a little bit at Daniel. So Daniel is, is an incredible uh, prophetic book full of uh, apocalyptic literature, much like the book of Revelation. And so we want to start here as kind of a prelude. So we're going to be in the book of Daniel for four weeks. So we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter uh, 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 9. And the reason why I'm letting you guys know that is it would probably be a pretty good idea for you to go ahead and do a little bit of home study. Do some study on your own because uh, these chapters are full of all kinds of things and each week we will simply not have time to be able to address all the things and plus it would just be a really, I think, good and, and unique and fun study uh, for you to uh, do on your own. Now, let me encourage you with a couple things as we as we prepare for uh, this sermon series, the book of Revelation and in Daniel. A couple things I want to challenge you with. Number one is uh, make sure that your study and your personal time is rooted in God's word. Right. So, uh, Revelation and and Daniel leading into Revelation. Revelation is one of the most complex pieces of literature that we have in the whole canon of scripture and it requires a lot of knowledge and information from all the books that come before it, all right? So the cool thing about Revelation is we're going to find out we're not going to be introduced to any new theologies, all right? These are all things that God has already addressed at some point somewhere, most of them. Now, some new events, but the theologies will not be new. And so let me encourage you to make sure that you just know God's word, be in it, be students of it, know uh, what it says, and do your study primarily primarily from God's word, because if we're not careful, what we'll do is, which, I mean, I'm not accusing you all of this, but this is what I do a lot, is I want to find out some things about revelation and end times and all that kind of stuff, and so what do I do? I run to God's word? No, 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 I run to Google, right? And I go on the internet, which can be very useful and very helpful, but it can also be very, very dangerous, all right? So make sure you know God's word. And make sure that as you're studying, nothing wrong with looking stuff up on the internet. I say that in jest. But, but make sure that your study is rooted in God's word. Because so often I have conversations with people that it seems as if they've done more internet research about end times than they have study of God's word. And we want to make sure that we're coming from this angle. That's why we want to study the book of Daniel and things like that. Number two, as we prepare to get into these genres, apocalyptic genre is different than all the other genres that we see elsewhere um, in Scripture. And so with that being said, that simply means that there's a lot of very, very smart people, all right, way, way, way smarter than myself uh, that disagree about some of the things that we're going to at some point talk about in this study. And so it's, it's unique in that sense. It's a little bit different than our study in Genesis, right? When you study the book of Genesis, it's thus says the Lord, everything we're looking back on, right? And, and we know it, it to be true, and it's, it's recorded in God's word, and, and there's very little uh, debate and open for uh, interpretations, right? Because we know what's already happened, whereas apocalyptic literature is a little bit different. There are some elements to things that we're going to talk about that have not yet happened, and there are a lot of very, very smart people that land in different spots on this. So my challenge to you, second, is not 
Challenge number one, be in God's word. Let's root ourselves in this. Challenge uh, number two, when it comes to this apocalyptic literature, is we need to approach this with all humility. All right? We need to approach it with an open-handedness. Now, there's some things that we're going to talk about theologically that we would consider close-handed things. Now, let me explain what I mean. Close-handed things are things like the birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's not open for debate for us, right? The, 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 the death of Jesus on the cross, the, the resurrection from sin. There's, there's closed-hand theological things that we don't openly debate or discuss. We have a position on. They are fixed. But when it comes to some of these other things that we're going to talk about, we need to approach with all humility and an open-handedness. And that simply just means that there's some people that think different things on this. And that's okay. Um, but just know that those are out there and don't be surprised about it. Because, again, this is apocalyptic in genre. And so some of these things haven't happened yet. And so we don't know them without uh, a doubt. So. All that to set up this, this whole series. So we're going to be in the book of Daniel uh, for, for about a month here. And then we're going to jump into the book of Revelation, which I'm very, very uh, excited about. But Daniel chapter 2. So in Daniel chapter 2, there are 49 verses in Daniel chapter 2. And for the sake of time this morning, we do not have time to cover all of these verses. So I'm going to summarize as best as I can and as quickly as I can the first 30 verses in this chapter. So that's why I'm, I'm telling you guys, go home, read through this, make sure that you're doing a little bit of study on your own, and then you can, you can uh, you know, kind of put some of this stuff together. But for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize Daniel chapter 2, the first 30 verses. All right, so in Daniel chapter 2, it starts out, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Verse 2, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So that's the context of this, of this chapter here. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it frightens him and he doesn't understand the interpretation of the dream. So he summons all of the people to come in and tell him what the dream means, right? So this should sound very reminiscent to some of the things we saw in the book of Genesis. The same thing happened with Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh has a dream. He does not interpret it. And that's what led to Joseph coming into power in all of Egypt. So very kind of similar situation here. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. So he summons, the Bible tells us, his, his sorcerers and enchanters and all the people that he could bring in that could help him uh, understand what the dream means. And, but this is what's interesting about it. Nebuchadnezzar, he is a guy that is so powerful. By the way, at this moment in time, in the context of history, there is nobody more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar on the face of the earth, right? This is a singular empire, all right? The Babylonian empire that he's king of is, is dominant throughout the entire world. So he is the most powerful person on the face of the earth. And because of that, he's used to getting his way. So when the guys come in, this is what Nebuchadnezzar tells them. Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I want you to tell me what my dream means, but I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. All right, which is a very weird thing, right? I mean, that doesn't seem very fair. And so all the enchanters and sorcerers and all these guys are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we'll tell you what the dream means, but first... Tell us what was in your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar's going, no, 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 listen. If, if I am going to be able to trust you 
I need to know that, that you can not only tell me what my dream means, but that you can tell me what my dream was. You see, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, if you can see the future, then you sh- should at least be able to see the past, right? Like, like if you're capable enough to be able to tell me of, about the things that, that are, are, are coming in the future, you should be able to tell me about the things that happened in the past. It kind of reminds me of people like you hear that go to people to like read their fortune and tell them. Like they always want to know stuff about them first, right? Why? Because they, they need some context. They can't actually do this thing on their own. And so that's what these sorcerers and magicians and enchanters, they're in the same boat. They're going, we'll tell you what it means, but you got to tell us about the dream itself. And he's going, no, 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 I'm up in the level. And this is what he says that's even crazier. He says, if you cannot tell me what my dream was and what it means, then I'm going to kill you and destroy and burn your houses down. Right? So this guy is not playing around. And this would be an incredibly frustrating moment for these guys, right? They're going, listen, if you just simply tell us what your dream was about, then we'll tell you what it means. And he keeps going back to this, no, no, no. Like, you're going to tell me both of those things. And so if you move along in the context of the story, they finally admit. In verse 10, it says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 12 tells us that because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And verse 13 goes out and says, so the decree went out. And if you guys have studied the book of Daniel before, you know, like later on, when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, you're reminded that once the king of Babylon makes a decree about something, there's no going back on it, right? I mean, his word is like law. He has rubber stamped this deal. And because he's already said, if you cannot do these things, you will show surely die or I'm going to have you killed. He's following through on it now. They're they're coming to him going, listen, what you're asking us to do, we can't do. In fact, not only can we not do it, nobody on earth can do it. This is something that only a God could do, right? You're asking us to tell you things that that we know nothing about and, and, and we can't do it. You've put us in an unbelievable situation in here. And so Nebuchadnezzar's not having any of it. He's going, no, I'm sticking with, with what I said. And so he says, uh, it, it's time for all of you to die. Well, because uh, of, of the nature of, of the book of Daniel and what Daniel and his friends were doing there, they fall underneath uh, the, the umbrella of, of the people who would be executed here. And so Daniel finds out through Arioch, the, the, the official of the, the, the head of the king's guard, that you guys are actually going to be killed because some guys went before the king and this whole thing happens. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 we're going we're gonna to get killed because of, uh, of something that, that we can't even help here? Like these guys are trying to interpret this deal and all that. And now me and my friends, we're, we're, we're on the chop block too. And Ariok basically tells him, yeah, that's true. So Daniel says, listen, if you could give me just a little bit of time, I think I could find things out for you. And so Ariok negotiates time for Daniel. And so the Bible tells us in verse 17 that Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Some of you may know them more by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are their Hebrew names. And so Daniel, the first thing Daniel does is he goes home and he finds his his guys and he says, listen, we need to get together. And in verse 18, it says, we need to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So him and his companions, 
Christians. They sat down, they prayed to God, and the Bible tells us that God reveals the mystery to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, this isn't the overall meaning of the text, but it's a powerful reminder for all of us in here as believers that this should be the first thing that we do, right? The first thing that Daniel does is he seeks the Lord. He doesn't try to go before the king first and then as a last ditch effort, go to God in prayer, right? No, he goes to God first. He goes to God, he recognizes his inability to do anything in this moment. He's hopeless. So he goes together with his guys. They pray, they ask God and beg him for mercy. God reveals to them what the dream means. And then Daniel is quick to give God thanks. And that's another reminder for us as he goes to God first and then he thanks God for his answer in prayer. And those are just uh, simple little reminders to us. So because of this, Daniel gets an opportunity to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. So Arioch brings uh, Daniel in. And in verse 27, it says that Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that's going to be the number one context for us as we study the word this morning. As Daniel comes in before King Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him, listen, remember what those other guys said? It's true that there's not a man on earth that can give you the answers that you seek. But there is a God in heaven who can reveal all things. And Daniel says, he has revealed to me your dream and what it means. And so Nebuchadnezzar grants Daniel the opportunity to stand before him and tell him what it all means. And so that's where we pick up in verse 31. Okay, so in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is standing before Nebuchadnezzar and he shares with him his dream. And he says this, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it was struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and become like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. All right? So up to this point, he shared with him, this is the dream that you've seen, and this is what it represents. So you've seen this great image, and the, the, the head is made of gold, and Daniel says, you, O king, are that head of gold, all right? If you pick up with me again in uh, verse 39, he continues, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, 
and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because the iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Okay, so Daniel stands before King Nebuchadnezzar. Because of, of, of what God has given him, he's able to tell him, this is what you saw in your dream, and this is what the dream means. So let's take for just a second what he saw in the dream. So we see from the text that Daniel describes Nebuchadnezzar seeing a, a very large image of a man, right? And he says that this image of a man is broken down into, into several different elements, and each one of those elements is representative of a kingdom that we'll get to here in a second. But but the head is, is of gold. The arms and chest are made of silver. The belly and thighs are bronze. And it has legs of iron. And then as you get down to the feet, it's a mixture of iron and clay. So, so Daniel is describing in great detail to the king what he saw. And so you know at this moment, Nebuchadnezzar is going to let him continue talking because Nebuchadnezzar knows that what Daniel's saying is true. Up to this point, if Daniel didn't accurately describe what Nebuchadnezzar had saw in his dream, then there would be no sense in Nebuchadnezzar letting him explain what the meaning or the interpretation was. So we know because of that that Daniel is spot on here in what Nebuchadnezzar saw. But it wasn't just what Nebuchadnezzar saw that was frightening. I think what frightened Nebuchadnezzar is he didn't know what it meant, right? So he saw this great statue. And so what Daniel comes in, he comes in with the interpretation and says, okay, so, so each of these areas, this, this great image that you saw, they represent kingdoms, right? And the only kingdom that we know for certain because of Daniel 2 in this text is the head of gold, right? Now, we'll talk about in future studies why we uh, think that we know what the other kingdoms are. But as far as Daniel chapter 2 is concerned, the only one that we know with full certainty is that the head of gold represents Babylon because he tells him that. The head of gold represents you, O king, and your empire. So, Imagine for a second, if you will, you've got, you've got this head of gold, and it's represented by the Babylonian Empire. And then Daniel goes on to say, all of the other ones represent future empires. So in the immediate context of Daniel, you represent the head, but all the other things represent things that have not even happened yet. So that's what Daniel's explaining to the king, that the God in heaven wants you to know that there are some kingdoms coming after yours that are going to rule in your place. 
And eventually there's going to come a kingdom that is from God himself that will rule forever. All right? And so that's what he's explaining to him. So for those of us in the room, because of, of, of information that we now have that Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and Daniel doesn't have, we can now look back and see that the majority of these things have already been fulfilled. All right, up to this point where we're at right now in 2021, almost all of these have actually been fulfilled. There's very little that's, that's left to happen. And so um, the head represented the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. The arms and chest of silver, we believe, represented the Medo-Persian Empire. So we know that Babylon is conquered by Cyrus with, with the help of the Medes and the Persians coming together, right? So remember, Daniel tells him there's empires coming that are inferior to you. But we know that they're not inferior in, in, in terms of military might. What he's talking about is they're inferior uh, to you in the sense that each empire we'll see begins to, to fragment off more and more. So Babylon was, was a singular empire led by Nebuchadnezzar alone. Then this next one we see is a combination of two groups. And we'll talk about the Grecian here in a second and then eventually the Rome. But, but the arms and chest of silver represent the Medo-Persian empire. The belly and thighs of bronze represent the Grecian empire. So we know that the Medo-Persian Empire is conquered by, does anybody know? The Greeks. Who would have led the Greeks? Alexander the Great, all right? So Alexander the Great, you guys, you, I'm telling you, you better do some study. I'm going to throw out questions throughout this, this series just randomly. Call out names. No, I won't do that part. But, but we know that Alexander comes in and, and the Greeks conquer uh, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then that empire is established. And then after that, uh, the Greeks are, are uh, conquered by the Roman Empire. So initially, the legs of iron are represented by the Roman Empire. And then he talks about the fact that as you move towards the feet, it begins to be a mixture of iron and clay. And this is where we get into the context of the story that has yet to happen. So all the way up through the legs of iron, we see that through the Roman Empire, we all know that those things are past tense. In fact, Rome was already firmly in place when Jesus Christ comes Onto this earth, right? And so right now, we know that we're somewhere in the, that mix of iron and clay and the things yet to come, all right? And so just for our purposes here this morning, know that that's what he's talking about. Is most of this has already been accomplished through the book of Daniel. And this is the cool part, is we can look back and see that God fulfilled all of these prophecies and all these promises, and it gives us assurance and hope for the final one. Does that make sense? Like we can put our hope and assurance in the fact that God is going to come through on his word for the last one, just like he did all the other ones. So just like God said, listen, this is you, Nebuchadnezzar, and somebody's coming after you. Guess what happened? Somebody came after him, and somebody came after him, and somebody came after them in the Roman Empire. And God is telling us, and Nebuchadnezzar here, that one day... One day, there's going to be an array of kingdoms that come together, and in the days of those kings, the Bible tells us in verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, all right? So he, he's reminding them that, that that's the emphasis of this text. The emphasis of this text isn't all the other empires. The emphasis of this text for us as believers is, is the kingdom of God. It's, it's the fifth one that we're, we're, we rarely talk about in this text. But it's, it's, it's God's kingdom that he's going to establish. And that's what he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know and hear. And it's what he wants to remind us of here this morning. So emphasis on this fifth kingdom, the, this kingdom being God's kingdom. So real quick, let's work through this 
this a little bit. So there's three things, there's three things that God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream, and we see through this interpretation. And it applied to him then, and it still applies to us today when it comes to God's kingdom. All right. So number one, number one is this: God's kingdom is of divine origin. God's kingdom is of divine origin. And why does this matter? It matters because it's what gives us our confidence, right? It's what brings us our our courage and our boldness because we know that if God's kingdom is of divine origin, then then God himself is going to make sure that these things happen. And God is not only establishing a kingdom of divine origin, but he has inserted his king of divine origin. So we know that the, the king who sits on the throne of God's kingdom is King Jesus. And all this matters because in the context of this, remember, remember who Nebuchadnezzar is, right? He is all powerful. In fact, we'll learn throughout the study of, of, of the book of Daniel, he, he would consider himself like God. That's how highly he thinks of himself. And God shows up and he shows Nebuchadnezzar that you're not as big and bad and powerful as you think you are. Your kingdom is of temporary and human origin. And I'm going to establish a kingdom one day that's of divine origin that I will be in charge of. And oh, by the way, you're not even in charge of your own kingdom. You're only in charge as much as I've allowed you to be in charge. Look at these verses. It's unbelievable when he says that. So, so he tells him that basically like, like listen, you, you have only... Uh, given, been given the, the right to lead the world because God has said so. It reminded me of my study this week uh, of, of another place that we find in the Bible um, when Jesus stands before Pilate. You guys know the story I'm talking about? When Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate is basically telling him, like, listen, do you not realize that I'm, I'm the person here that has the authority to kill you or to help you live? And Jesus responds back to him with, you have only the authority that's been granted to you from heaven, right? So what was Jesus saying at that moment? You're not in charge as much as you think you're in charge. You're only in power because the God of heaven is allowing you to be in power. And that's what God wanted to remind him is your kingdom is of human origin. It rests on your shoulders, but I'm going to establish a kingdom one day that's of divine origin. And I'm in complete control of this. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're only in control as as much as I'm allowing you to be in control of. The second thing here is that God's kingdom is eternal in duration. Eternal in duration, meaning it never ends. God's saying, I'm going to come and establish a kingdom that will never end. It's it's in total uh, contrast to the kingdoms here that God's talking about. Like, that's why he wants Nebuchadnezzar to see this image, right? Like, you're the head of gold, but guess what? Eventually, the head of gold is, is, is traded out for somebody else, right? And God's reminding Nebuchadnezzar that my kingdom is eternal, but your kingdom is temporary, Not only am I in control of you, but I'm also in control of how long you get to be in control. One of these days, I'm going to move you out, and I'm going to let somebody else come in. And then I'm going to move them out too, and somebody else is going to come in. And so God is demonstrating his control over all of human history. All the earthly kingdoms will eventually come to an end. Remind me of 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to those things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's just a reminder to us of everything in this life for us is temporary. It's temporary. The kingdoms that we set up, 
the, the, the worlds we try to conquer, all of these things, none of them matter in, in, in the grand scheme of things because they all come to an end. And God is reminding Nebuchadnezzar here, you think that you're something, don't you? But you're only in charge because I say that you can be in charge. And you're only going to be allowed to be in charge as long as I say that you can be in charge. But your kingdom is temporary and my kingdom is eternal. The third thing we see here is that God's kingdom is unmatched in power. Unmatched in power. It is unconquerable. Nothing is going to get in the way of God and his purposes. And it should bring about a, a measure of courage and boldness for us, right? Like, that's the third thing he reminds Nebuchadnezzar of is, listen, not, not only is your reign temporary, but, but you're, you're conquerable. In fact, you will be displaced by somebody else that's going to come in that's going to be stronger and more powerful than even you are, and you will be conquered. So you think that you're great, but you need to understand that you're only in power because I say you can be in power. And it's only as long as I say that you can be there. And oh, by the way, you are not the mightiest thing that's ever been on the face of the earth. You'll see someday in the future, right? And I'm sure in this moment, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is probably like, you know, we'll see about that. But one day Cyrus the Great will lead the Medes and the Persians. They will march on Babylon and Babylon will come to an end. Their reign will come to an end, and eventually, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, we'll see in the book of Daniel's reign, comes to an end. But it's God's reminder to them that your kingdom and my kingdom are not the same thing. In fact, my kingdom is otherworldly. My kingdom is the exact opposite of yours, where, where yours is, was set up by humans, minds of divine origin, where yours is, is, is temporary, mine's eternal in duration, where yours is, is you know, Conquerable, mine is unconquerable. My kingdom will be unmatched in power. And we know that that kingdom is established here in the book of Daniel. When God determines the time in history to send Jesus Christ back for his return. And the Bible tells us in the days of those kings, whenever that is in the future, that God will come, he will establish his kingdom, and it will be all of those things that we talked about. It will be unconquerable, it will be eternal and, and there's nothing that anybody's going to be able to do, including Satan himself. And that's a powerful reminder to us in, in all of this, uh, that, that we're not talking about dualism here, right? When we talk about the unconquerable kingdom of God, I want you to remember that. I think so many people in the world get so confused. They see this battle of good and evil, like who's going to win? How's it all going to play itself out? This is not a Marvel movie, right? Th this is the king of the universe, the God that created everything. He's coming in and saying, listen, this is how it's going to be. And this is how it's all going to turn out. There is no who's going to win between good and evil here. God says, I win. And that's it. And so how do we respond to this? Well, let's look first at how Nebuchadnezzar responded. And then let's talk about for us in the room. Verse 46 and 47. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar honestly responds here the only way uh, that, that's fitting for this. Nebuchadnezzar gives credit to Daniel, but he also gives credit to Daniel's God because he's going to listen. We, we established from the beginning that nobody could tell me what this is except for a God. And your God has demonstrated 
that he is a God, right? And at this point, we know that Nebuchadnezzar is not fully trusting in God or anything like that. He's probably just accepting Daniel's God and with all the other gods that, that he's allowed in. But, but he's at least making reference to the point that your God is real and he's serious. And these things must be true because you told me what my dream was and you've told me what it meant. And so your God must be the God of gods and the king of kings. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar's response was in this moment, that your God is who he is. So for us, application, and I'm going to break this down real simple. There's an application here for believers, and there's an application here for unbelievers. Application for believers. Listen, if you are in this room and you have put your faith and your trust in God, be reminded, just like we did in the book of of Genesis, be reminded that God is sovereign and he has established an eternal and unconquerable kingdom that we are now part of. Remind yourself of that because there's going to be days in our future where it's gonna be hard to see how this thing plays itself out the way that God says it's going to. But man, we can take God's word to the bank on this. And we can encourage ourselves in this, to think about that. Pastor Chad said not too long ago, I love this, that, that I am nearly invincible until God is done using me in the way that he sees fit, right? And that, that's the image of the church. In this in-between time, while we're waiting on the return of Christ to establish that kingdom that we talked about, where are we at right now? We're, we're in this place of knowing that God is going to do it. And if, if God is for us, then who can be against us, Right? That's the confidence that we have. I'm, I'm nearly invincible as long as God still has something for me to be able to accomplish. So go forward knowing that. Uh, for those of you in the room that may be unbelievers, application for unbelievers is, is very simple. Know that you're finite and your only hope is God. That's the message that God reminded Nebuchadnezzar of, and that's the message that I want to remind you of this morning, is that God is real, and God is reigning, and God will return to establish an everlasting kingdom and the bible tells us that you will either be a part of that kingdom for all eternity or you will be a part of a place called hell for all eternity and it simply boils down to do you have a relationship with that king do you have a relationship with king jesus have you put your hope and your faith in him because that's the good news right now it's not too late But there is a day coming when Jesus Christ returns to this earth that there will be no more opportunities. And at that point, everything is sealed up and a done deal. And there will be no more chance for you to give your heart and life to Christ. But you have that opportunity today. You can come down here this morning and put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. And the Bible tells us that you will have eternal life. And you will be a part of this kingdom that Daniel's saying that God was bringing and ushering in one day in the last days. So that's my application for you. So let me pray for this this morning and then we'll have a time of response. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that you would just remind us this morning, God, of, of, of not only your power, but God, your heart towards us. God, that's what I want all of us in this room to remember, God, that there is a day coming that you have fixed where Jesus will return and establish an everlasting kingdom that will never end. But God, until that day comes, I pray that you would remind us of the work that you have before us. 
And God, as we even go into this series, Lord, I pray that we'd be reminded as we, as we dive into these studies in Daniel and the book of Revelation and as exciting and fun and, and interesting as these things can be, God, I pray that we'd never lose sight of the fact that our most pressing work is sharing the good news of the gospel with a lost and dying world, God, because we want as many people as possible to be able to experience this unbelievable, everlasting kingdom that you're going to set up. So God, I pray that for those of us in this room that know you as Savior and Lord, God, that you give us all courage and all boldness to go out into a world and share the good news, God. Recognize that what can anybody do is, God, if you are forced, then who can be against us? God, for those in this, in this room that don't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would bring them to that recognition, God. Bring them to the end of themselves. God, remind them that they are sinners, and God, they are in a hopeless situation that there's nothing that they can do about on their own. But God, you can save them because of your workforce on the cross. Father, I pray that you'll be with this time of response. God, have your way with us. Give us boldness to respond in whatever way you're leading and guiding us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.